This whole summer, we're going through the book of Psalms, uh, but there's two reasons why we're actually looking at our passage this morning. Uh, number one, Pastor Kempis took all the other Psalms I wanted to preach. Uh, and secondly, I think that our passage this morning is a really good complement to what we looked at last week. Uh, if you were here with us in main service, you know that we were looking at uh, Psalm 42, God our helper, how God helps us in the midst of various kinds of trials, but then especially when it comes to the idea of, of spiritual depression, when you're just feeling really, really low. And what we're going to be doing this morning is looking again at how God helps us, uh, but from the other angle of our high priest and that high priestly ministry. Have you ever wondered if your job will exist 20 years from now? Have you ever wondered uh, whether the the thing that you're currently doing uh, for a salary, for your house, for your family, will it still be here 20 years from now? Uh, Because there was this study done by Oxford University called the future of employment. And and what the study did is it said that, you know, machines are rising at such a rapid pace. Uh, And in 20 years, most likely over 50% of all the current jobs that we have could potentially be replaced by computers. I don't think this is too far-fetched. As you see how technology is continually advancing, uh, you've probably noticed how automation is changing things. Just even look at transportation. A couple centuries ago, the stagecoach was the big thing. Uh, You got around driving with a horse, and that eventually was replaced with the steam engine and the, the varieties of trains that we had. And that was eventually replaced again uh, by the automobile, by taxi drivers, by, by, by cars. And if you've been paying attention recently to Tesla, uh, you know that we're actually getting to the point of self-driving cars. Well, this is also done in the realm of communication. Again, a couple centuries ago, the Pony Express was the big thing that everyone looked to. Uh, you can get a letter across from one ocean to the next in a period of seven to ten days. It was a revolution for its time until the telegraph was invented. And suddenly all of those ponies weren't needed anymore. And then the telegraph was eventually replaced by switchboard operators as phones became a thing. And as all of you know, with the rise of cellular devices, uh, even now Verizon and AT&T have replaced all that has come before it. In the realms of food and grocery service, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the self-checkout aisle. How you can go to the grocery store and you don't even need to talk to a single individual. You can go through the aisles, get your food, uh, and check it out yourself. If you're not yet convinced about the reality of job obsolescence or the fact that things are changing, uh, I would encourage you to talk to the town crier or the ice cutter, or the milkman. Because jobs change with the times. But I think the greatest job replacement, uh, the one that I want to look at this morning, uh, is actually the priesthood of Israel. See, that was one of the most important jobs among the 12 tribes of Israel. You needed to have the priests Uh, But what we see in the New Testament, what we see in Jesus Christ, is that that old system, the priesthood, is now obsolete. 
And that we don't need the priesthood anymore because we have a new high priest. Everything changed millennia ago when an angel appeared to a young maiden. And since that day, nothing has been the same. If you've read through the book of Hebrews, you know that the theme is the idea that Jesus is supreme. That Jesus is better. He is better than all of the old systems of Judaism. He is better than the old ways of Israel. And as you go through the book, you see how the author is showing that Jesus is better in every possible way. Uh, he says how he has a better identity. Uh, he is better and more superior to the angels, uh, to Moses and to Abraham. The covenant that he brings is better than the old covenants of the Old Testament because it is made on better promises. Uh, the covenant, the new covenant, is the supreme one. Uh, you see how he comes from a superior lineage. Uh, he's not from the priesthood of Aaron like all of the priests before him, uh, but he comes from the line of Melchizedek, this shadowy figure that most of us don't really understand. And what we are going to see in our text in Hebrews 4, from 14 to 16, is that Jesus is the ultimate, the superior high priest. That in Jesus, the priestly ministry of Israel is now obsolete uh, because we have a permanent atonement. We have a permanent priest, and he is the ultimate and the final as the old English Puritan once said, John Flavel, he said that salvation is revealed by Christ as a prophet. It is procured by him as a priest, and it is applied by him as a king. And Jesus, as the Messiah, is the prophet, priest, and king. As the prophet, he is the one that brings the full and final revelation of God. As king, he is the one that will rule and reign over all things in the universe. Uh, and in our text this morning, we're going to see how he is the great and ultimate high priest who brings to us help in our time of need. I don't know if you've been looking for help. I don't know if that's something you long for. But if you do, I think that our text has something for you. And so what we're going to see are these three aspects of Jesus's high priestly ministry. Uh, three different elements that are going to help you understand why you can turn to God in your time of need. So with that, I invite you to read with me Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of God, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the very word of the living God. Lord, I just ask that you would speak to your people even now. As we just sang, I pray that your word would go forth and that uh, broken and quiet hearts would be awakened by the power of God. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're reading our text, you'll notice that in verse 14, it starts with a phrase, since or therefore. 
the reason, as you've heard many times going to church, is that that is drawing back to something uh, that comes before our immediate text. And here is what is going on. You see, the Jewish audience that this preacher is writing to, they were under immense trouble. They were suffering persecution for their faith. Uh, They had left Judaism to pursue Jesus Christ and to be followers of him. Uh, But they were experiencing persecution. Uh, You had individuals that were being thrown in jail. Uh, Their family members having to pay out of their own pocket to feed their brothers and sisters in prison. And now their money and food is starting to run short. Uh, You see how now, as the church is experiencing the malaise of persecution, uh, they're beginning to feel the tension. Uh, You have people that are starting to drift away from the faith in chapter 2. Chapter 5 describes how the believers are becoming more sluggish in their walk with God. Uh, They're not as adamant as they used to be in their pursuit of him. Uh, You see going on later in chapter 10 that they're beginning to neglect fellowship with one another. That as they're experiencing their persecutions and their hardships, they're beginning to isolate themselves from those around them. And worst of all, in chapter 13, you see how some of them are beginning to lose their love for one another. Their persecutions, their trials, it had a consequence. It was affecting them. And worst of all, the the biggest theme that you see in this letter is that these people were continually being pulled back to Judaism. You see over and over again how the author is warning them, do not go back to your old way of life. Uh, Do not go back to your former faith, because if you do, you will suffer judgment. Uh, What you see throughout chapter 4 leading into our passage is he's going back and painting the picture of Israel walking through the wilderness. Uh, After they had been rescued from slavery in Egypt, they're now traveling through the wilderness. And as they approach the promised land, what happens? They look at how strong their enemies were, how tall and mighty they were, and said, God will not defeat our enemies. And it's because of that unbelief, it's because they failed to recognize who God was and the fact that he had the power to deliver them, that they died in the wilderness. Because of their unbelief, they were failed to enter God's promised rest. And it is in response to that That we get to 4, verse 11 and 12, one of the most famous passages. It says this. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, that is the rest of the promised land, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What the author is saying is that the word is a sword. And if you fail to heed its warnings, if you just live your life however you want, and you fail to turn to God in faith, then it will cut you. It will divide you. It will judge you. I think it's so unfortunate that that passage is often written in our journals and diaries and written in nice, colorful letters because I think we often fail to see the grave danger that the author is trying to say. But just like any good storyteller, he he changes his tone. Uh, He tries to give the same kind of exhortation, but from a different angle. 
uh, is the classic good cop, bad cop routine. Uh, what happens is he just went on this whole section, chapter 4, warning you of the danger of unbelief. But now in our section, from verse 14 to 16, uh, he turns to the positive end, uh, the comforting end, uh, the encouraging end. He's saying that, yes, you must not fall back to your old ways because if you do, you will be killed. You will be judged by God. But on the other hand, you need to see how good our high priest is. You need to see how ultimate our high priest is. Because if and when you do, if you can understand who Jesus is as our high priest, then you will have the motivation you need to persevere in your faith. You'll have the encouragement you need to continue in this hard life. See, I recognize that for most of us here, uh, we don't struggle with the idea of going back to Judaism. But I do recognize that if you are a person in this room, then you do struggle. You struggle with sin. Uh, You struggle with trials. Uh, You struggle with your suffering. And because of that, I believe that this message is something that you need to hear. Because what our author is saying is that Jesus, as our high priest, will give you the help you need in your time of need. And so with that being said, we're going to look at these three aspects of Jesus' identity as our high priest. Uh, First, in verse 14, we see how he is the supreme priest. He is the supreme one. This focuses on his transcendence, uh, saying that Jesus is a priest unlike any that have come before him. Jesus is unlike any of those normal human beings that have been high priests back in the day. And I know that for most of us, we don't really understand or grasp what exactly the priesthood meant. Uh, We may think that it's outdated or confusing or just strange or difficult as you read through the Torah. Uh, You might be very just flustered trying to understand what it means. When you think of a high priest, you might think of it similarly as you would an Aztec soldier or a Victorian coppersmith. Uh, Just the fact that it's something that's so obscure and out there. But if you want to be a faithful Christian, uh, you need to understand what the high priest did. See, throughout the Old Testament, he was one of the most important figures. Uh, He was the one that was ultimately responsible for mediating the relationship between God and man. Uh, He would be wearing these crazy garments, these luxurious and beautiful garments. Uh, He was the pope before there was a pope in terms of his appearance. Uh, He had these 12 costly stones, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And even though he was this beautiful person to look at with these lofty garments, uh, the greatest contradiction is that he was also a very bloody figure. As he performed the sacrifices on behalf of God's people, he would be shedding blood over and over again as he would sprinkle it on the altar in the tabernacle on behalf of God's people. See, his job on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 is he was the one that was responsible for getting your sins or Israel's sins cleansed. If you were in Israel back in that day, the only way that you can truly have forgiveness is through this day of mediation on this Day of Atonement. 
And so for the Jewish audience that was listening to this preacher, this, this writer, this author, they would have been struggling with the idea that they didn't have a high priest anymore. If you were leaving the old system of Judaism and the old ways of life, you no longer had that human high priest on your side. And how on earth would you be able to go before God because I am a sinful individual? And it's in response to that that our author says, no, you do have a high priest. And you do not only have any high priest, you have the supreme high priest, the best high priest, the better high priest. And that message is here for you as well if you're sitting here. For these Jewish people, they would have heard as they understood their Greek and Hebrew that God, that Jesus was the great, great priest. And I think that in our text, you see how he is the great one, the superior one in two ways. Number one, you see how he made a superior atonement. If you read in Hebrews 9, 12, it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Uh, one of the lessons that you learn quickly in the Old Testament is that no one can have their sins forgiven without the shedding of blood. Uh, someone or something needs to die in order for someone else to not die or to be spared death. Uh, and in the Old Testament system, you know how it was by the sacrificing of different kinds of animals. Uh, you would sacrifice goats or, or bulls or doves, depending on the particular sacrifice and depending on how much money you had. But the idea is you always had to shed blood. You had to kill something. And what we see in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus does something that no other high priest would ever dare even think about or do. Instead of killing or sacrificing an animal, he kills and sacrifices himself. He offers his own flesh and his own blood for the sins of his people. And unlike the old system in which those sacrifices only worked for one year, Jesus' death was satisfactory forever and ever. See, because Jesus was fully God, because he was perfect, his death was worth more than any blood or goat could ever dare. His sacrifice was perfect, and because of it, there no longer was a need uh, for these other sacrifices. And like every other high priest, our Lord could do his work of sacrifice and say, it is finished. It's a beautiful picture when you see how the veil that separated man from God's presence in the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Because it means that now that Jesus died, all payment was finished. The cross was the final altar, and Jesus was the final sacrifice. Uh, he was the better atoning person. And this is why we take communion, isn't it? The reason we have the bread and the cup is it is a reminder over and over again that Jesus' work on the cross was enough. We remind ourselves that he gave his own body and blood on our behalf. And it is a permanent sacrifice. The atonement he made was better. 
But secondly, I think the author is saying that Jesus is a great high priest, not only because he has a superior uh, position or because he made a superior atonement, but because he is in a better place. Uh, to give just a little bit of an illustration about this, uh, I went to New York a couple years ago. It was great. I had the chance to see uh, the Big Apple and most of the big tourist destinations that people talk about. And one of my favorite destinations there uh, was the Statue of Liberty. You know, you see it in postcards, you see it in movies, you see it on TV. And when you see it in person, it's, it's really surreal. Uh, it's like a child dream come true. And I remember looking at it feeling like, man, this is so grand. This is so amazing to look at. It's part of our nation's history. And then a year or two later, uh, I had the privilege of going to Las Vegas for a Taekwondo tournament, and I found out there's another Statue of Liberty. But if you've ever been to Las Vegas, you know that it's not quite the same thing. It's a little bit smaller, surrounded by a bunch of other, you know, quasi-landmarks. And honestly, it, it just looks kind of pitiful. Uh, just, just given the nature of Las Vegas and the size of it and the fact that it's not really clean, it's just nowhere near to how good the original is. Uh, it's a shadow of the real thing. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a less than of the real thing. And, and that kind of difference between the real Statue of Liberty and the fake one in Las Vegas uh, is exactly what our author is trying to say about the tabernacle and the temple and the presence of God. See, when you were a Jew in that era— uh, you, you saw the tabernacle as the very dwelling place of God. And the high priest would go from the outside of it and slowly make his way inward. Uh, he would start in the outer courts where even the, the general people could go uh, to the inner court and then to the holy place. And then only the high priest once a year could go to the holy of holies. It's this grand, amazing progression that only the high priest could do. Uh, but what do we see in our text in verse 14? Our author says that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Uh, and this is very, very significant. You see, the Jewish people viewed the heavens in a very particular way. You have the earth where we are currently standing and living. Uh, above that, you have the sky. And above the sky, you have the planets and the stars. And then above even that, you have the very presence of God. That God dwelt in heaven in his throne above everything else, above the sky and above the planets and stars. And what our author is saying is that our high priest, Jesus, he passed through the heavens. Uh, he went into the very dwelling place of God. He went into the very throne room of God. He went where no other high priest could go. Uh, see, the human high priests, they would go and perform their sacrifices in this little dinky tabernacle. But it didn't even compare to the real dwelling place of God, which is in heaven. And our author is saying that that is how significant our high priest is. He went where no other person before him could go. He went into God's very throne. And he did not only go there, he stayed there. The high priests of old would go in once a year. They would perform their duties quickly and they would get out. They knew that God's presence was not to be taken lightly. It was not a place for them to dwell. But Jesus, as the supreme high priest, 
as it says in Hebrews 1.3, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Even now, Jesus sits in God's presence, sits at the Father's right hand, and he intercedes for you if you are a believer. Let's see, again, the, the high priest of old had to perform the sacrifice once, and then they would wait after the Day of Atonement for the next year, where they could offer it a second time and a third time. But each time there was this long period where their sins would be covering over their head. Uh, but what we see in our high priest, Jesus Christ, is that he mediates continually for you. That when you sin, your sin is no longer on your head. It doesn't dwell on you for another year. But that in Christ, it can be forgiven immediately. Because he sits at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes on your behalf continually. And his intercession is why you should have certainty of your salvation. If you are indeed in Christ. Because no matter how bad your sin might be, he sits at the Father's right hand as the mediator, as the forgiver of your sins. Jesus uses his position as high priest not to destroy you, but to deliver you. He is the great one. And so it's in response to these two truths about our high priest, the fact that Jesus made the superior atonement and that he has the superior position, that our author says this, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast your beliefs. Uh, The confession here would have been just the statement of truth that you believe that bind you together. Uh, You can think of how for Boy Scouts you have the Scouts Code or the, the oath that they say over and over again. Uh, you can think of how for Americans we have the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, you can think about how the early Christians had the Nicene Creed. You had all of these different you know, statements of truth that you affirm, saying, this is what I believe. This is what binds me together with all of the other people that associate in my group. And for these early Christians, this, uh, this statement, this confession, uh, would have been a very basic statement about who Jesus was about what their sins were, about what it meant to follow him and confess him as Lord. That was their confession. And what our author is saying is that despite what you might be facing, you must hold fast your confession. See, it would have been very easy in light of all of this trauma that the Hebrews were going through, that they would have been thinking about going back to their old ways. Uh, They would have seen the suffering of their friends in prison. They would have seen how difficult and costly it was for them to be believers. And they would have looked back at their Jewish friends and say, look how peaceful that is. Uh, They're not under persecution. Uh, They have the synagogues. They have everything of the old ways. And in response to that, this author is saying, you must hold fast your confession. You must not forsake the truth of Jesus Christ because he is the great high priest. I recognize that most of you don't feel the temptation to go back to Judaism. But you do feel the pull to go back to your old manner of life, don't you? Whether that's being one who was more of a Pharisee and believed in external works-based faith, or if you did follow another religion like Buddhism or Hinduism, if you were an individual that was associated with the wrong kinds of crowds, that was all about pleasing yourself and hurting other people, 
uh, whether you worship your career or whether you worship your money. If you're a Christian, you left something. Uh, You went away from something. And so the call of this passage, the call of this author is you too, in the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of your hardships, you must hold on to your faith. You must hold on to your confession of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him because Jesus is better. The message to hold fast your confession was the same for the Jews of old. And it is the same for you if you are sitting here. So the question right now of this passage is, how do you deal with the hardships of life? What do you do when life is striking you with trouble after trouble? And our author is saying, fix your eyes on your high priest. See how great he is. See how transcendent he is. See how lofty he is because he is like none other. But then secondly, he says, look at our sympathetic priest. We recognize that Jesus is supreme. He is the greatest one. And yet he is personal. Uh, He is close. He is intimate. I think the, the fear or doubt that many of these Jews would have been wondering is that they couldn't really relate to Jesus. Uh, especially knowing that he is the son of God. I mean, how do you relate to the, the son of God? Uh, Jesus, as the Holy One, was perfectly righteous and sinless and perfect and omnipotent. He is everything that we are not. And so fine, on the one hand, I could recognize that he is truly the greatest high priest, but then how on earth will I as a sinner, as a mere man, relate to him? Jesus is like Superman. He is powerful. He is greater than anything else. And yet because of that, he is fully other. He is fully different than us. It's like if you have a woman from Manhattan, New York, that wears a fur coat and all the jewels in the world, going up to a young, starving boy in Vietnam saying, I understand your situation. That's the kind of tension that these Jewish people would have felt. How on earth could Jesus, as our high priest, relate to us? And it's in response to that, that our pastor, our author says, Jesus indeed understands you. Uh, He understands where you're coming from. Uh, In verse 15, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, Our author is trying to stress the fact that Jesus does understand. See, he could have said, We have a high priest that sympathizes. But what does he say? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Uh, He's trying to draw that double contradiction or that double negation to stress and emphasize what it means that Jesus can sympathize. That there should be absolutely no doubt in your mind that God, that our high priest, knows where you are and he knows your situation and that he sympathizes. Because what we see is that Jesus as man is one in whom every respect has been tempted as we are. During the incarnation, when Jesus became a man, when he took on flesh, he gained the ability to bleed. He can now feel hurt. Uh, He can experience the emotions that we as human beings have. Uh, And you see this throughout the Gospels. 
Uh, when he was in the wilderness, he was hungry. Uh, and when he stood before Lazarus' tomb, he wept. Uh, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he was in agony. And when he was on the cross, he felt isolated. Uh, Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions and what it means to be like us as people. And this is why Hebrews 2.17 says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect which means that he is like one of us. That he experienced temptations as we do. He experienced the hardship of human life as do you and me. And yet, despite his temptation, despite the fact that he went through all of life as we do, he did not sin. As man, Jesus could be tempted, but as God, he could not fall to that temptation. It's what Christians for centuries have called the impeccability of Christ. Uh, The fact that he would not be able to fall into his sin. Uh, And that goes into a huge theological debate, which we don't have time for this morning, because that would really be a full another message. But the point of all of that, well, the reason that this author is trying to bring up is to say that just because he was sinless, just because he couldn't fall into sin, it doesn't mean that he didn't feel the full weight of temptation. Uh, See, think about it this way. At times in life, you will feel the draw to sin, won't you? Uh, You'll feel tempted. You'll feel the sinful desires, and you grow. And as long as you are not giving into that sin, that temptation will slowly build up over time. Uh, It gets stronger and stronger. And if you give into that sin, well, at least for a little bit, the temptation's gone. When you sin, it removes the full force of temptation And so what happens is it's like a a soda can, if you've ever seen one of those. I'm in youth ministry, and so I see them a lot. Uh, We were just at camp, and there was probably at least one of our kids that had soda on him at all times. But what happens with a soda can? Uh, When you shake it, uh, the pressure builds up inside. And it builds up over and over and stronger and stronger until you eventually open it. And then suddenly all the pressure is gone. And in the same way, when we give into sin, that pressure is released. But Jesus, as the sinless one, as the one who never gave into temptation, that means that he felt temptation to the strongest degree. Uh, He was tempted in a way that you and I would never be able to fully understand because we sin on the daily. We are sinners, but because he was not, he felt the fullest degree of it. I just want to say that this doesn't mean that Jesus was tempted in every possible way. Christ never experienced the temptation of being addicted to a smartphone. Jesus didn't know the temptations and struggles that come with old age. But what it means is that he experienced temptation to its fullest degree. Uh, the, The temptation to be prideful and selfish and greedy, and self-serving, that he felt all of those to its fullest degree, and yet he did not sin. Friends, it is the human nature of Jesus, which is why we can know that he sympathizes with us, that he knows your situation. As one writer once said, we have a God who not only is there for you, but one who has been there 
who has gone through the same kinds of struggles. And the thing that you must know is that Jesus does not only sympathize with you in part, but he sympathizes perfectly. He can understand and help you perfectly. See, if you're struggling with gambling or alcoholism, you're not going to go to your other friends that are in that too and ask them for help, would you? If you're addicted to gambling, you're not going to go to the casino and ask your buddies, help me get out of this. Uh, You're going to go to people that you know don't struggle with that, or even better yet, someone that has come out of that struggle because you know that they understand they're able to help you. And in the same way, we need to go to Jesus. We need to recognize that he is the ultimate help because he is the one individual that did not give in to temptation. He is the one person that did not become a sinner even though he felt temptation. It's something that you and I need to wrestle with that because he has overcome sin in his totality, there is no one better that you can turn to in your struggle He is the great high priest. He is the one with whom there is no equal. And he fully sympathizes with you. In your battle against sin, or in your battle with the various trials of life, who do you turn to? Who do you recognize is there for you? Because if you grasp this passage if you understand who Jesus is as our high priest, then you will turn to him. You will ask him for help. And that is going to be our third and final point. That we have a supreme high priest. We have a sympathetic high priest. But then finally in verse 16, we see how he is our sustaining priest. This author is going through this whole argument. He's laid out Jesus' dual identity, that he is both transcendent and he is imminent. And that he is very distant and lofty, but he is also close. And bridging those two identities, the call is that he is available to you. That you have the right to approach him. Uh, You see, the common man throughout the Old Testament times and throughout civilization, uh, you would have no right to approach a king, would you not? Uh, If you look at the book of Esther, even the wife of the king almost lost her life going to the king. Uh, You would probably be arrested or even shot at if you tried to just run to the White House and approach the president. Uh, Kings and executives were always held in high esteem and high regard, and they were put off as someone that was far away But what do we see here about our high priest? Uh, He says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, the royal position of grace, that we can go before the king who gives us grace. And we do not only just go with timidity or wantonly, but we can go there with confidence that we can boldly approach the throne of God, that we can go before him openly and honestly with what we have, not wondering if he is going to push us away, not wondering if our sin is too great, not wondering if we are too small, if we've made too many mistakes, but that we know that God opens up his throne of grace to us openly, to all who come before him. That that ability to go before God is something that is found in Jesus Christ. That in him, you have a free invitation. 
And it is when you go to the throne of grace, when you go there, you will find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. That you are not left on your own with just Bible verses or just some nice thoughts, but that God actually will help you. He will give you something. We see how God will extend to us grace and mercy because he has already purchased grace and mercy. As it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, When you sin, you know that you're not on your own anymore. You can know that you're not covered in the wretchedness of your sins because in Jesus, you have forgiveness. Uh, You have a cleansing of your old ways. You are no longer having iniquity over your head. And we see how this also means that when we go before God, he can help us to overcome our temptation. He is one who has experienced it to the full most, and he will help you. As it says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with a temptation, he will provide a way of escape. You are not on your own in your battle against your flesh. God is there as your high priest. He is there uh, at the throne of grace to give you the grace you need in your time of need. And finally, I think that this also means that he will help us uh, when we encounter trials of life. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, in our Lord, in our high priest, we get something that we can't get anywhere else. Uh, You can go to mentors and they will give you bits of advice. Uh, You could go to therapists and they will give you opinions on what's wrong with you. Uh, You can go to gurus and they will give you sound bites of what sounds really flashy and helpful. But it's only in turning to Jesus, our high priest, that you can find real and genuine help. That God will help you in your time of need. That whether you are dealing with sin or trials or discouragement, that God and Jesus is there for you. And because of that, you do not need to walk through your battles alone. I think that's the thing that I see so prevalent in our current society is people feel isolated. I think it's in part why you're seeing so many suicides in the news and among all of these, these very famous people that have it all. Because in the midst of everything, wealth, fame, status is not enough. And they are still on their own. But in Jesus, you have help in your time of need. This is the message that the Hebrews needed to hear immensely. Uh, They were struggling with their persecution and imprisonment and all the, the drawing back to go back to their old ways of life. And even though you are not dealing with those same kinds of issues, again, you do struggle. Whether that's wondering why God has not brought you a child, 
or if you have dealt with a miscarriage over and over again, or if you have family members or even sons and daughters that have left the faith, or if you've had family members or you yourself are dealing with diseases and ailments that happen over and over again, you're wondering why would God allow something like that to happen to you? That regardless of what you might dealing with, you know that you are not the only one. You know that you have someone that understands and that will be your high priest to give you the grace and mercy in your time of need. And friends, I hope that you understand this, that you will not continue life just on your own. That you will run to God in prayer over and over and over again because he is the source of your comfort and the source of your help and the source of your aid. So do not forsake the message of this text. Uh, Do not ignore what this author is saying about our God because he is saying that our high priest is transcendent. He is lofty. And yet he is also personable. He is intimate. He is close. And because he is both of these things, you have the ability to approach him. Because he is the mediator that has cleansed all of your sins, that has given the final sacrifice that never needs to be repeated, you can have full confidence and assurance knowing that God is with you and that he will help you through your trials and through your temptations and through your hardships. To close our time, Ian and Becky are going to come back up and play a song called My Soul Arise. And during this time, I just want you to listen to the words of this song, to reflect on it, to hear what it means that Jesus is our mediator and our high priest. And if you are in a time of need, then I hope and pray that you will go to the throne of grace. That you will pray to God because he will help you. Through Jesus, we have the ultimate mediator and intercessor and helper. And Jesus, the high priestly ministry is now obsolete. And so therefore, I pray and I hope that you will fall on your knees before our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the universe and our great high priest. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that there are many believers that are in very different places this morning and that there are some of us that are struggling immensely with sin or with temptations or with trials. And yet despite all of that, I pray that you would show them that you are present, that we have access to God. We have access that is unparalleled. And I pray that every believer here would indeed be comforted by the throne of grace, by the help that only you, Jesus, provide. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.